Welcome to Wake Up Watch, the podcast. I am Dewana McCray, and I am here with Winston partners, Danielle Williams and Mike Thomasulu to discuss the key takeaways from the VLSI technology versus Intel trial, as well as what to expect next. Mike and Danielle, could you give us, you know, just the high level summary of what took place in the VLSI technology versus Intel trial? Well, sure. You know, I mean, I think everybody knows the first trial's over. VLSI won a $2.2 billion verdict. Um, and, I, you know, that, that's that's the sum up. I think, you know, what, what I think going forward, people probably want to know, you know what what's next and what did practitioners learn? And so I think that's what we will really want to uh, try to focus on for this podcast. Okay, so what did the practitioners learn from the VLSI technology versus Intel trial? So I think the first thing that we learned is that Waco is open for trials during the pandemic, regardless of what uh, changes we may see uh, either to individual counties or individual states, uh, the Waco division is open. And what that what that means for cases that are uh, that are in Austin, well, it, it depends on what Austin does. But if the Austin courthouse opens up, then there then the case will be tried in Austin. Uh, if the Austin courthouse does not open up, then Waco is open and the case will be tried in Waco. That that's what we're that's what we're expecting uh, right for for example the VLSI uh, uh, round two uh, trial is for April and uh, right now uh, it's in Austin uh, if Austin doesn't open up it'll be tried in Waco that that's our that's our expectation we'll we'll see uh, we'll see what um, the parties uh, file in advance of the April trial date. The other thing that uh, we've seen uh, happen is uh, some new uh, procedures instituted by the court around filing under seal. And uh, as as I think uh, our listeners probably heard us talk about, it, most everything was redacted uh, on the on the docket in the the first uh, when the case. Uh, and so now there are new uh, procedures for filing redacted pleadings and whether that will apply and, and benefit those of us who are who are following the, the trials in uh, Judge Albright's court in the, in the near term. Certainly those folks practicing or those folks with cases before Judge Albright will need to to file the, the redacted versions of their pleadings uh, as their case progresses. And I, I think that's a big deal. Um, you know, it, there's a couple of benefits. Number one, parties don't have to file motions for uh, leave to file something under seal, which nobody likes doing, and the courts really don't like it because they have to grant them to allow the parties to file things uh, under seal. So you know, it's a benefit in that sense to the court and to the parties, and then it's a benefit to the public at large that we're going to see redacted filings so that you know, clients can see things, of course, that you know have been filed under seal and left under seal beforehand, and you know the public can see, people can learn, you know, what to do and not do in his court and what's working and not working. So I, I think overall, it's a really, it's a really positive change. I, I agree with you, Mike. I think it's a positive change. I agree as well. I think it's a positive change for us as well. Um, we we get to review the um, redacted pleadings and are able to um, better report on what happened prior to trial um, before. Albright. So there were um, 
other key takeaways, Mike and Danielle, as it relates to spring trial? Um, what were some of those takeaways? Well, I think one takeaway is that that he had three three days of hearings on pretrial motions. I mean, does uh, you know it, it's like a uh, a brief bank of motions in limine and Dalberts and motions for summary judgment. I mean, really a large number of motions were filed. I think he had three full days of hearings. Um, and he did grant one summary judgment of non-infringement on Intel's behalf. The, um, so I think, you know, there's a couple takeaways from that. But what do you think, Danielle, when you hear that there's that many motions filed? Well, I, I, that, that's a lot of motions to, to get through. And because not only were the pleadings themselves but the titles of the pleadings were redacted uh, in the docket. And so it's hard to, to discern uh, the strategy for the, for the motions uh, without, you know, without a title and without the, without the substance. And I know we've, we've had the benefit of uh, snippets of it uh, in the, in the final order from the court, but that, that's for this particular venue, uh, if you file, uh, if you file a, uh, Summary judgment motions based on the plaintiff's playbook or the defendant's uh, playbook, it's unlikely to get much traction with this court. If you were to file one summary judgment motion, uh, we might get some traction with that motion with this court. And as we saw, however many summary judgment there were, he granted one. So there's opportunity for for some narrowing pretrial through a summary judgment motion, but he, he did not um, grant the full uh, multitude of motions. So that tells me uh, a judicious approach for summary judgment is the is the way with Judge Albright. And I think that was true from what we saw in the in the first trial uh, with Roku. And I think that that still is the same today. Are there any other takeaways from the pre-trial? Yes, there are other there are other takeaways, and I think this is consistent with what we saw in the Roku trial. Is that the the motions in limine are an opportunity to preview where you think the evidentiary issues are going to be for the court for trial. He's likely to uh, to reserve ruling on those uh, until he actually gets to trial, and so there's plenty of opportunity to to preview the issue in advance of trial uh, and then uh, continue to preview and socialize the issue with the court uh, during the trial. And once you're trying to get the, the evidence in or keep the evidence out, then uh, you can continue to press your arguments uh, with the um, with the court. So, Mike, you were there in person. Is that, I mean, did you get the get the indication that there was an opportunity to continue to, to press the motions or the issues in the motions in limine uh, throughout the trial? Uh, was there any kind of clear demarcation line where the parties had overstayed their welcome on any kind of issue? I never saw any indication that the parties had overstated their welcome. I think that, you know, he's trying to get the decision right. And if somebody convinces him that some piece of evidence should come in, um, you know, it, it even if he's previously excluded, he might let it in. And I don't know that that's, I mean, I think parties want predictability when they make the trial plan. So, you know, there's a tension between trying to get it right and, you know, kind of throwing throwing a monkey wrench into people's plans that they've, you know, they planned around the fact that this is or is not coming in. And, you know, so, the, but I think you just have to be prepared for that, that, that he may very well change his mind. 
Um, and I don't think that it was necessarily in one party's favor or the other that I could see. Um, but I just think that he's going to try to get it right. I think a good example of it was there was a um, the 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 impeachment uh, of Dr. Conti, where Dr. Conti, you know, they had brought up. Wilmer had brought up that he had worked on a, a lot of IRL cases. And then the on on redirect, the examining lawyer asked Dr. Connie what happened in those cases. And there had been a motion in limine, I think, in that. And what, what ultimately the judge said was, look, if you want an answer to that question, you're going to get it. But I'm going to let Mr. Lee do whatever he wants, uh, you know, after you sit down. And the guy went ahead and asked the question. And then even though there had been apparently a motion in limine, on, on that prior testimony, Bill Lee was able to you know, introduce the evidence that the federal circuit had overruled Dr. Conti's opinion on something. So I think that's an example of, of him you know, just reconsidering, you know, based on the facts on the ground, what he was going to do with a specific piece of evidence. Mike and Danielle, speaking of parties wanting predictability, uh, we have now seen two patent infringement trials before Judge Albright. Do either of you, can you say whether or not you have a sense of how he, he runs his court um, and whether or not there are any differences between the Roku um, and VLSI trial? I think there is a short list of, uh, of preferences for Judge Albright that we've seen across uh, the two trials. Uh, one is... At, uh, if you're, if you are a witness on cross-examination, you need to answer the question that's asked with a yes or no answer. Uh, and if you can't answer the question, then you need to say you can't answer the question. But it's not the opportunity for you to, to clarify or to state what your, um, what your side's position is on cross-examination. The opportunity for you to do that is on redirect. And that is, that is, that is crystal clear from the Roku case and from the, uh, from the Intel case. The other, one is uh, he does not he disfavors carrying over a witness. Uh, so when he he would like to have the witness up and down in the same day, and if it's not going to be up and down in the same day, then he just wants to have the preview of the wit or the review of the witness's uh, credentials in the case of a case of an expert. When he adjourned on Friday in the middle or somewhere. Uh, before the end of Dr. Grumwald's cross-examination, that is an exception. Uh, that will not, um, his rule will continue to be to complete the testimony of the witness before the end of the trial day. I think a couple of other um, quickly takeaways are he, he you know, technical fact witnesses, I think that they have to be very careful to make sure that they're giving fact testimony and you need to show personal knowledge. So you need to choose your witnesses who do in fact have personal knowledge. Uh, that's especially particularly true for the for the engineers. A uh, second, he's a stickler for following the rules on impeachment by prior inconsistent statements, such as the deposition. You really have to go through the uh, proper protocols. And then I say the third thing is he sealed the court for an enormous amount of time because he really you know, it was at Intel's request and um, and he really respected that you know that he agreed that it was significant confidential information. And then the way they proceeded was a lot of the parties would present, you know, for instance, a damages number or, some, or the schematic would be shown only to the jury so that you know, they could allow um, the oral testimony to be heard by 
the court you know, by, by people outside the court on the audio feed. And then the parties would sort of point to things on the on the screen so that they could you know, try to seal the court as little as possible. So he wanted the court to be unsealed as little as possible. But he was very respectful, I think, of Intel's request to protect Intel's confidential information, even going so far as really not you know, allowing the, the actual damages numbers to come out you know, until the very end. Well, that's fine. The Roku trial. Um, what's next? What are people paying attention to before Judge Albright? Well, I think that folks are going to be paying attention to how he handles the post-trial motions. In this case, uh, there's there's opportunity for for motions. Uh, I, I think on the on the damages issues. Uh, I'll be interested just given the. The examination, the cross-examination of um, BLSI's damages expert, I think some of the issues, well, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the issues that they were raising about the reliability of both the bed, the methodology used and the apportionment, uh, the apportionment aspects of the, of the numbers that BLSI presented to be part of the post-trial motions. And then, uh, so what, once the briefing is done, uh, what that looks like or what the court does with it before uh, it gets packaged up and sent to the to the federal circuit, assuming it goes to the to the federal circuit. I'm also curious about curious about the timing of their motions, because with that April trial coming up, that's not much time to get the issues fully briefed. So I imagine that we'll have the the initial motions filed and then some kind of um, stay or stay is the wrong word, but some kind of a extension in place. Uh, so that the April trial can can proceed and the briefing can be um, addressed uh, without interference from the the trial schedule. Yeah. So for for me, Dewana, I think all eyes are. I'm going to bet that everybody will be even more interested in the next trial, which starts April 12th. I know I will be. And I, you know, barring something unusual, I'll be back down there. Um, so it will be in Waco if Austin is not open. But if it's in Austin, then it'll be in Austin. I, I bet you Intel's trying to uh, you know do everything they can to try to have that happen in Austin. Uh, I think the big fights going forward are going to be over intra-district transfer. Early on, many of Judge Albright's cases were transferred to Austin, and so they're there now. Um, It seems unlikely that they'll get transferred back to Waco as long as Austin is, in fact, open. Um, But new cases, I think people are going to really do everything they can to try to get their cases transferred to Waco. We... We saw the defense verdict for Roku and, you know, that was kind of an interesting jury, but this jury pool was very different. Uh, the Waco courthouse draws from something like 20 counties spread out all over. And a lot of those are pretty, you know, pretty rural counties. And a lot of these jurors came from those type of counties. And you see a two point, you know, they adopted the, the damages model, you know, uh, whole cloth. billion. And I think people are going to say, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to be in Waco and I've been doing everything I can to get over to Austin. I feel like I'll get a better shake as a defendant there. And certainly plaintiffs aren't going to want to give up that venue in Waco like they used to. Yeah. And I'll also be interested in the, in the next trial. I want to, I'm particularly interested if they've got a similar damages model on, on both sides of the V and how it's going to go forward. And then, I'll also be interested in seeing whether there are any uh, changes to the to the approach uh, as far as the witnesses are concerned uh, for for either side uh, based on 
based on the outcome of this initial trial? Well, I, I heard it through the grapevine that the number is going to be even bigger that, that, uh, that VLSI is seeking in the next trial. So, wow. Well, what they say around here is pigs, pigs get, get fat. fat and hogs get slaughtered. Well, I'm sure that's what Intel is hoping for. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see see what happens. But um, All eyes on Waco again. Okay, so Danielle and Mike, I look forward to the April 12th trial. Um, and I also look forward to the Waco Watch podcast reporting on the second trial. Um, thank you to you both. It's always a pleasure doing these podcasts with you. Bye, Dawana. Bye, Danielle. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.